Hey, I'm Robert Bordelon Pearson, and this is Blue Collar Bible Scholar. Going live today, playing around with that. We are talking about textual criticism today, and why it's a pile of flaming hot garbage. And I'm, I'm going to explain it before I just continue tearing into it. I just want to be upfront with my bias: is I hate it, and it's dumb. Well, it's dumb, and I hate it because it's dumb. So we'll, I'll unpack it more. There's going to be some more details than just that. Uh, but I just, I want you to know, definitely do your own research. Uh, look into this topic insofar as you are able. And just have fun with it. Don't, don't take it too seriously. Uh, before we dive in too deep, we're talking about the original text of Scripture. Uh, the original documents and things. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds. I'm mainly criticizing the methodology. I'm not going to list any specific codexes or uh, papyri or whatever. Uh, I'm not. I'm not getting that that far into it right now. The the Bible text as we receive it, 85% of all of the Bible's text, which is a lot of words, matches. Uniformly, with no no errors or variants. There's 15% that doesn't match 100% across all the different manuscripts we have. Um, 85% is pretty good. It's a solid B. Uh, now, the vast majority of those errors, we'll say, uh, the vast majority of them constitute little more than spelling changes. And uh, other stuff. My brain just stopped working on me. Oh, the movable new and that kind of thing. I'll, I'll explain a little more in a second here. Uh, but they, none of them actually affect the meaning of the word as you would... Uh, the meaning of the sentence, rather. As uh, the words in the sentence. Uh, it's, it's not actually going to affect what they, what they mean, how they, how they come together to make the sentence do uh, a thing. I'm trying to find a place to park. I'm not going to be in anybody's way. And here we go. Uh, there's simple spelling variations. This is the difference of using um, in on the end of the word an. Uh, you say, it's been an honor. An honor, right? In on the end of a word before H. Not always, because I'd like a honeycomb. It would sound weird if I said, and honeycomb. So the, the in disappears in one place, but not the other. That, that kind of thing happens in Greek with the knee, uh, the letter in. It, it makes a n sound. It's not a direct corollary. Anyway, they, they move it around a lot. Sometimes it'll be on the end of a word. Sometimes it'll drop off of that word for other reasons. Uh, there are other times where the spelling changes because they don't have a uniform dictionary. You know, Mr. Webster wasn't around back then. Uh, they had to a lot of times just go by how they were taught to spell or sound it out. And so then you'll have spelling variations that don't actually change what word they used. They just spelled the same phonetic sound a different way. Uh, and then, uh, oh, word order is the other one that'll, that'll be the, the majority. This is the majority of errors in the biblical manuscripts that we find is they have... Um, They'll have the word order slightly different. Uh, 
the uh, the difference being uh, Billy running marathon. Billy marathon running. Marathon running Billy. Running marathon Billy. Running Billy marathon. Marathons don't run. So all of those different word orders, you still got the impression it was a kid named Billy who was running a marathon. Um, with various emphasis or levels of clarity. Greek, the word order doesn't matter like that. The, the tenses and the, the numbers and persons are very easily matched. Uh, so you'll have words that can be three and four words apart that relate to each other, and it's obvious because of how Greek grammar works. So you'll have different, various uh, word orders between some of the different manuscripts. These are largely, it counts as an error because it's not identical, but it, it doesn't really change anything. You know, like the, all the times Paul says uh, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, and he's like constantly flipping around. Those would all count as errors, um, depending on which manuscript had what. Uh, the total number of differences is like 400,000 or something in the, the ballpark thereof. But once again, the aggressive majority is still these little oddball nuance changes. They don't actually affect meaning. That's not to say none of the differences affect the meaning. That's not to say all of the differences uh, don't have any doctrinal impact. Um, but they, uh, all of the vital truths of Scripture are readily apparent in the parts that are uncontested divinity of Christ, uh, the Godhead. Um, but at the same time, this is the Word of God. It's important. We should care about the details. So textual criticism is sort of the entire field of study that uh, is a method of reading the found manuscripts of Scripture that seeks to determine the exact wording of autographs. The, the, auto, the autographs are the original writings, uh, that, like the original copy that Paul wrote. He didn't write it. He was dictating to a buddy who had better penmanship. Because uh, paper is expensive. Ink is expensive. Uh, you you want to get that right on the first go around. So that original copy, though, we the goal is to try and discern uh, what exactly that said. Uh Textual criticism, as I'm using it and why it's garbage, because that seemed like a good and desirable goal, gets used synonymous for the, what is it, reasoned eclecticism, which means you use logic to go with the minority variant readings. Um, and that's a specific methodology within textual criticism. I use textual criticism as synonymous with reasoned eclecticism because... It's really the, the biggest field that matters as far as biblical studies go for people that actually care and believe the Bible is real. True facts, Jack. Uh, there's a whole section of biblical scholarship that are secular humanist atheists that just study it the way that they would study Homer's The Odyssey or something. Um, reason eclecticism is the operating principle behind Nestle Allen's morphological Greek New Testament, which is the copy of the Greek New Testament um, that gets used for all of our modern Bible translations. Uh, the ESV, the NASB, the Revised, the King James Revisions are based on uh, that text and where it differs from the Texas Receptus and all these fancy things. Um, just Google, Google your brains out You know, every, every week. Try and learn one new thing if, if it's really overwhelming. Um, so yeah, textual criticism typically refers to reasoned eclecticism when you just use textual criticism. They're, they're already kind of assuming that specific application. 
Um, so there are fundamental pillars of how they view the, the manuscripts uh, that, that lead to their outcomes, right? Because we just have a bunch of old documents. How do we read these old documents to get a single Greek text that we believe is as close to the original as possible? And that's, that's the goal. It sounds like a good goal, but the way they get there sets up the answer ahead of time, right? I can have a really good car, um, and I can have a really well-paved road, but the moment I choose which road to start down, uh, I already know where I'm not going to end up, or where I am going to end up, based on which road I begin to turn down. And uh, so, you know, everything's very sound, it's such a great road, it's awesome. Well, yeah, but that road's headed right off a cliff. Uh, if I take this other turn, that road goes on into town and over to Walmart. So that's what we're looking at is which, where does this road lead? What is the methods and how do those methods sort of predetermine your outcome? What are they going to lead to? Uh, the goal is for it to lead to a accurate representation of the original text of the Bible. So this largely is only going to apply to New Testament text. Uh, Old Testament is its own bag of cats uh, because generally speaking, it's well attested that, well, we all know it was written in Hebrew, right? Uh, but our oldest actual documents of the Old Testament are in Greek. Um, but everybody bases everything off of the Masoretic text, which didn't show up to like a thousand. Um, as a comparative example, all of the Greek New Testament uh, manuscripts and codexes coming from like 500 or 400 or whatever, this uh, 500 or so. Some, some of the papyri are coming from 100s and 200s almost. Um, these are really early compared to 1000 AD. Like the, the Crusades are almost going on by the time we have the Masoretic text. Uh, it's very late. And really it's based, its accuracy is based entirely on a couple of places in Isaiah that match for the Dead Sea Scroll find, which is very early. Um, and then... The, uh, that's why the Isaiah scroll was such a big deal because it had like I want to say 90% of the book of Isaiah maybe a little less than that um, and it matched word for word the Masoretic text which is a, a big deal minus like one or two spelling differences uh, but the, the issue is it's so very late um, and it doesn't agree with the earlier uh, Greek text but supposedly the Greek text has other problems with it um, but then you have different church fathers making reference. Uh, I think Augustine mentions it and then Justin mentions it that you have references to, no, it was just, I think it was Justin Martyr who had ability to go into an early synagogue and had seen them. Uh, he had seen documents of the old Testament that had alterations made to, uh, messianic prophecies of Jesus. So I don't know. It's a weird mixed bag, but you got two different languages, two different documentary histories. Um, this is, this is primarily going to focus on New Testament stuff. Um, though some of the principles and methodologies are carried over to Old Testament study. Um, especially with the uh, reasoned eclecticism. Um, it's, it's all kinds of weird. Anyway, so the primary uh, beginning... The, the, there are primary pillars of the textual criticism that sort of support the entire methodology, uh, the entire mindset of it. Uh, when you, when you distill it down, how they're doing stuff, 
there is a division of all of the manuscripts based on text type. Uh, the, those are Alexandrian text, Byzantine text, and uh, Western text. There is uh, Greasebox Canons, which is, uh, he, he accumulated some of the research of earlier scholars and then added some of his own, and then some people after him added and tweaked a little more, but then it, it distills it into uh, essentially four proofs or four questions that um, are how you look at the uh, any specific text, a difference. So when, you, when you're comparing all the manuscripts and then you come to a difference, how do you decide which reading is the more accurate reading? And uh, Greasebox canons are the shorter reading is preferred with the thought that scribes are more likely to add things. The harder reading is preferred with the thought that scribes would be more likely to change things to make sense. So the reading that makes the least amount of sense is preferred. Uh, the reading that differs with uh, standard doctrine or with uh, other harmonized passages is preferred. And the, uh, the last one, oh, that's right, the one that best accounts for the other variants is preferred. And so those are it's kind of a, a four-part test for any specific difference. Uh, the other one is it, it's based on the witnesses of the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are the earliest, uh, both Alexandrian manuscripts. Codex is their fancy word for an entire copy of the New Testament in this case. Um, it might be the whole Bible, I think. The, uh, the whole New Testament or the Bible in its entirety will both be referred to as Codex, and I just forget which these are. Um, but they were supposedly dated to around 400 AD, and it's why the whole last half of the last chapter of Mark gets an asterisk next to it, is these are the earliest and best manuscripts that don't include the entire you know, last chunk of Mark 16. Um, while the majority, the vast majority of... Oh yeah, we have thousands of documents. There's like more than 5,000 um, manuscripts in the New Testament. Uh, when you compare to like five or six or maybe in the hundreds for like Homer's The Odyssey or uh, the Iliad or any, any other of these, um, Virgil, any of these other ancient authors, you're lucky to get more than 10. There are more than 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. We, we got a lot. Guys, it's pretty awesome. Right, so uh, the other one is Westcott and Hort's genealogical method that assumes manuscripts that match in their wording must have come from a single source that they were copied from. And so then it sort of presumes that even though we have one manuscript that's different and ten manuscripts that say the exact same thing, the one that's different versus the all say the same thing, these are now assumed to have come from a single source. Um, if you're sharp, you're already seeing the gaping holes in this logic. Uh, and then um, the, other, the other fundamental pillar of textual criticism, i.e. reasoned eclecticism as a specific subset of textual criticism, um, are the New Testament papyri, which are taken to be almost entirely Alexandrian, and they're the earliest, and uh, such finds as like the Oxyrhynchus um, and uh, 
No, I don't think there were New Testament. Yeah, and that's right. That's right. The uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls preceded the New Testament. Uh, there's supposedly a BC find. I forget the exact dating. It's like a, the hundreds or two hundreds or something. Uh, it was it was close to zero, but it was still way before um, for for some of the oldest manuscripts in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyway, Oxyrhynchus papyri or one of the finds. So the papyri is simply a small sleeve of paper made from reeds at um, the. Uh, the Egypt area. I'm going to run the AC a little bit, guys, so I apologize if the fan noise is, is too loud, but I'm beginning to melt, and it's, it's unbearable. The uh, papyri would be like little sleeves of paper. See, the papyrus is very fragile and would flake apart, leaving, um, even of a whole book, only several fragments that'd be scattered throughout, um, or they would be a, a fragment where maybe you couldn't afford an entire copy of the book of the Bible, but you'd have your favorite Bible verses you could write down. So, so most of them are the size of, like, you know, gift cards to maybe a 3x5 card or a, a credit card. They're, they're, they're very small compared to, like, full codexes and scrolls and stuff. Uh, but they're, they're super old, some of them dating to, like, the 200s, the 100s AD. Anno Domini. So... I feel like there are major, major problems with each of these uh, pillars. They all come together. Each sort of method, methodology is a pillar of the total um, reasoned eclecticism methodology, which is the spine of modern textual criticism. Um, in general, I don't like the term textual criticism because anytime you have a scholarly thing with the word criticism on it, it's because secular humanists atheists are using their Marxist ideology to undermine everything that's good and true in this world, um, i.e. critical race theory. I don't think there's a direct connection to or from the Frankfurt School. This is all stuff you can guys Google. It's, it's uh, fascinating reading if you're into it. Uh, just get used for a lot of old German names and look up the Tübingen School a bit. Um, but these are all different schools of thought and, and like small cloisters of scholars that wind up in America circa 1940 and they really become the driving force in American scholarship after that uh, it's why Marxism is taking over all of our colleges um, the Frankfurt School intentionally incorporated Marxism and a Freudian view of the, the human person and uh, a couple other crazy ideologies and really mixed it together in their own blend and then began intentionally trying to push and subvert institutions with it um, but you can see their handiwork on anything that's called criticism or critical, critical race theory, um, all kinds of stuff. It, my brain is fried. It's at the end of the day of work. So that's as far as we'll go on that, but it's a rabbit hole to look into. But anyway, you see a scholarly study or school of something, and uh, you'll almost invariably find that it has Marxist, materialist, uh, secular humanist undergirdings that kind of form the, the framework of how that ideology sees the world. Uh, and that's really present here. Um, one of the baseline assumptions, oh, well, it's more in higher criticism, but one of the baseline assumptions for this uh, entire field of textual criticism is that the entirety of church history, the entirety of church tradition, and what uh, early Christians lived and died for and did their very best to pass on to us is so 
just incredibly, irrevocably flawed that uh, some textual, criti uh, textual criticism scholars think we'll never be able to achieve the original wording of a certain text, or the original documents are just beyond our ken. Uh, and it just bothers me. But the every single one of these pillars, almost to a man, are self-referential and presumptive. See, none of this has any basis in fact or objective reality. Here's what I mean. The division of all of the manuscripts into text types. Okay? We have thousands of manuscripts, right? So we've got to figure out how to sort these manuscripts and then begin handling them based on how we sorted them, right? So there's an Alexandrian type, a Byzantine type, and a Western type. Three types. Okay, that sounds good. Before this scholarship, all they did was say there's a majority text and a minority text. They kept it very simple. They looked at all the readings, and all of the readings that agreed with each other uniformly, every reading that was attested to by a majority of the manuscripts, said, oh, these manuscripts, this is the reading that we'll go with. It's the majority reading. That's the one we're going to use. Uh, all of the other texts that didn't agree with that are the minority texts, and we're just going to kind of ignore them. We're aware of them. We're going to set them in a corner unless something changes or we find just like a treasure trove somewhere. Alexandria is a big place, you know, who knows? Essentially, the majority text was rebranded as the Byzantine text, and the minority text is rebranded as the Alexandrian text. That's essentially it. It was a rebrand because dig all you want. Find a definition, find a functional scholarly definition of a Byzantine text type. The only definition you'll find is a majority reading. The majority of the document, of the readings of that document agree. That's the only prerequisite. They're not using the type of font. They're not using the ink that was used. They're not using the text. They named it after a place, Byzantium, Constantinople. Uh, was it found in Byzantium? Not necessarily. Does it use a particular Byzantine script? No. Uh, it just has the readings that match the other readings. That's the requirement to be Byzantine. What makes it Alexandrian? Oh, it doesn't agree with the majority, so it's the minority. But we call it Alexandrian now. Did you find it in Alexandria? Mm, sometimes. Uh, not always, though. Okay, does it use a particular script or ink or kind of paper? That, oh, I mean, the papyri do. But, you know, the papyri agree with the Byzantine readings almost as much as the Alexandrian readings. So, the, even the New Testament papyri aren't ironclad like that. Uh, it's a mixed bag. And honestly, the Alland of Nestle Alland, I'm jumping around a little bit, but it's my style. Uh, of Nestle Alland, the morphological Greek New Testament guy, in observing the papyri finds, says that the majority of them defy any text-type classifications that they had developed, and it really undermined the entire text-type classification to begin with. Uh, and it, it was, it, it, it rendered it moot then, because those are the earliest, and the earliest don't fit into what they assume were these pre-made categories. Um, so the the divisions into text types are based entirely on what's the majority or minority reading. 
Uh, not whether it was actually found in Byzantium, not whether it used a particular script. There was no evidentiary basis in reality, in objective reality for it. They just thought, oh, well, maybe the, these came together to actually have similar lineages, so we'll do that. Um, okay, but it's you're guessing then. There's no proof or evidence. You're just guessing. So it's axiomatic. It's assumed to be true. And then everybody for the next hundred years is just copying each other's homework. They're not actually doing the research themselves and questioning what they're learning. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the only definition I could really find of the Byzantine text was from Edito Critica Maior. uh, And uh, the introduction, section 3.1, page 10, it just says a majority reading. That's its full definition for the Byzantine text. Is any majority reading is a Byzantine text. Okay, but then why don't you just call it the majority? Because there's nothing that specifically anchors it to Byzantium. All right. Uh, Greasebox cannons. They're entirely presumptive. They're based on this guy's Greasebox assuming that the scribes are more likely to add things. He's assuming the scribes are more likely to edit things so they make sense. And he's assuming that the scribes are more likely to harmonize disconcordant passages. And uh, he's also assuming that there is this sort of unbroken lineage, scribal lineage that happens, so that such that any particular variant would then have sort of a, a parent-child relationship with the other variants. Uh, he gives zero evidence for any of this. Uh, he just presumes it and then points at other places where, like, see, it kind of makes sense if you assume that's what happened here. <coughs> uh, there have been multiple actual studies of the ancient um, scribes' traditions, uh, how they viewed things, where they were at when they did stuff, and wh- what their actual error rates were. And um, any actual evidentiary-based study finds that they're more likely to omit Mistakes are more likely to be accidental omissions, um, which means the longer reading should be preferred, which means the reading that makes more sense should be preferred. Uh, And it's very rare that they would make an intentional addition to the text. Uh, So that's, like, it's the exact opposite of everything he assumed. If you actually look at evidence, if you actually look at real humans and study how real humans do things, I mean, the the veracity of the scribes and the scribal tradition is why the Masoretic text even means anything. And then as soon as we come over to Christians, we just throw all that out the window and say, well, they were just changing it all over the place. And that already assumes that the inerrant word of God has a bunch of mistakes that need fixing to begin with. It assumes that the errors and the disharmonies and uh, all of these different problems are in the original and then needed to be fixed later. That's the assumption that you come to the table with. And anything you're looking for, you will find. Uh, so yeah, the entirety of Greasebox canons are presumptive, axiomatic, and they just lead to including more problems. Every time there's a problem with the text, what do you do? Find the one that gives you less information. Find the one that 
doesn't make grammatical sense. Find the one that's a bad spelling. Oh, let's find the one that doesn't harmonize with the other first-hand accounts in the Bible. <coughs> um, and it's these, he never gives any evidence. And the few times you do actually find evidence from studies of scribal behaviors of the early Greek manuscripts, uh, you find it's the exact opposite of what his canons tell you to expect. Because uh, he based all his stuff off his big brain worms. He's a smart boy. Well, it's you have to base it on evidence. Because nobody cares how smart you are or what you think. You have to be able to produce evidence in objective reality for all of us to critically observe. Mr. Critic. Um, and then, of course, his assumption then preloads a heavy reliance on the minority texts that differ a lot. So now it's going to overweight and favor the minority texts as a as a, a a priori assumption going into it before you even touch anything. You're just assuming the Bible's going to have lots of problems in it. Um, and then you know what? You find all of the problems in the very small number of texts that don't agree with the over ninety percent of the five thousand documents you have. And you just somehow decide that those are the most important. Um, the next sort of pillar of it is the reliability of Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. <clears throat> uh, the problem is they're incredibly unreliable texts. If you take a minute, hop over to YouTube and you look up Chick Tracks. Uh, C-H-I-C-K Tracks. T-R-A-C-T. <coughs> Sorry, my throat's dry. Um... He's got an entire, and then, so like, search Chick Tracks Sinaiticus. Spelled phonetically S-I-N-I-A-T-I-C-U-S. He's got an entire series of videos where he breaks down just the insanity of Codex Sinaiticus. Um, the papyri's not even yellow when they first find it. It's called the White Manuscript. Uh, the guy that finds it is a sketchy con artist. Um, he sells it immediately to another sketchy con artist. They produce one page, and then they sell it, and then they're like, oh, we have more, and they disappear for a few days, and then they find suddenly more. Magically, it's a full codex. Uh, the whole thing is extra sketchy. Like, honestly, the, the golden tablets of Moroni have a little more veracity than Sinaiticus once you read some of the, the details of where it comes from. It's not... I mean, it's got a fancy name, right? It's called a codex. I'm completely reliable. Um, even barring all of that, right? Assume you don't believe a word of that. The two really re earliest, most reliable manuscripts, right, for why we ignore an entire half a chapter in Mark, um, which is the entire ascension of Christ into heaven in the book of Mark. Um, if you just compare them to each other. In the Gospels alone, right? Codex means it's the entire New Testament. Uh, potentially the Bible, I forget which. I think, I think they're just the New Testament. Um, the way, if you just compare the Gospels, more than 3,000 differences. That's ignoring the little differences we talked about earlier. Spelling variations and, and uh, like regional spelling variations or synonyms. Ignoring all of that, you still had 3,000 significant meaning-changing errors differences between these two earliest and best codexes, uh, one of which is incredibly sketchy on its own. Um, so yeah, just, just in the Gospels, the guy that sat down to start doing it 
uh, I forget his name off the top of my head. He he got to like 400 pages, 800 pages total, 400 pages uh, comparing them together, and then another 400 pages looking at just one of them. Uh, and he's like, "I'm out, I'm out, fam, I'm done." Uh, the the other pillar, Westcott and Hort's genealogical method, assuming that texts that match are copied from another earlier text. Uh, once again, is just based on an assumption. It's axiomatic garbage. They assumed that to be true and then operated as though it was true. And then other less intelligent people copied their homework for like a hundred years now. Uh, nobody seems to care. We're just still doing it in scholarship. Um, there's no real textual evidence to support that. And no parent-child relationship between manuscripts has been found to date. Uh, maybe two, maybe. Maybe two. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're back down to the papyri, right? Where it's, it's a mixed bag. They match the Byzantine reading as much as they match the minority text. Um, the entirety of this nonsense is built upon a really smart guy thought a thing once. And we all just copied his homework and said it's true. And that's a big problem. Because, see, all the earlier scholarship simply went with the majority text. The reading that was prevalent throughout all 5,000, there'd be an overwhelming majority. Almost every single time there's a variance, there'd be a reading that was the same across a, a vast majority of the text. And that reading would be preferred. And they would just put that in. And you wind up with a lot of harmonies in the scriptures. That's what the Textus Receptus is based off of. There's some other things that happen there. Um, to then get the King James Bible, to then get the um, the Geneva Bible, and um, I believe that was also what Tyndale was working on when he was doing his um, New Testament translation. And that was that was how they did it. The minority texts were variants. They were aware of them. They set them to the side because all these documents were found all over the place, all over the world. Um, all over Christendom, they were everywhere, and so you just compare them to each other, and the mathematical odds that the exact same error would happen, and across 5,000 documents, to the level that that exact same error would become the exact same error in every single document, or even a majority of the documents, is preposterously small. Uh, say you have an error once every 10 words. And you have a 10-word papyri. Let's, let's assume we got a little 10-word papyrus. There's one error in this papyrus. Um, so let's, let's go back, though. We've got an original copy. And somebody, you know, say, say we've got like an ancient codex, right? This is the original copy that we're using. And I'm going to copy out of that onto my little papyrus to take home. And then those get copied of copied, and those get copied of copied. Each one has 10 words. So there's one error on each. The odds that that one error would be the same between... You know, I'm, I'm copying from this, this is the original, I'm going to copy, and then somebody else is going to copy, and then somebody else is going to copy. The odds that just three of them would have one error, right, the same error, has to be one in ten chance that they're the same error between all three. This is a one in ten chance. The odds that the second one is going to be the same error that I copy is a one in a hundred chance. The odds that the third one is going to be the exact same copy error is a one and a thousand chance. And then when you start talking about copies of copies or other copies, the way 
statistics compound, you wind up easily at like the third generation of manuscripts that it's a one in a million or one in two million chance that you would have the same exact error in a majority of the copies for then that to be the majority reading and wrong. Um, in order, once you get beyond that, you're talking in the trillions easily. By the time you're, you're the fourth and fifth generation away from that original copy, you're talking in the trillions that the majority of all of these successive branched out copies, that the majority would be an identical error that is different from the original, is in the trillions. Um, I want to say, I'll put in the description after this post and stuff, and then when I cross-post it to all the places... There is a link to a YouTube video. A lot of this is from a gentleman uh, named Dr. Tor who presents this. He's a proponent of the majority text. I learned all this stuff in school, and I used his debate to uh, kind of structure my argument and uh, refresh my memory of some things. Uh, but he's the one who gives the t statistical argument for the majority method, uh, which is the one that makes the most numerical sense. And the biggest problem they had with all of this... Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, I think, spend enough time really dwelling on it, is at every step of the textual criticism, it assumes, it assumes something without giving evidence for that assumption, without giving evidence for that connection. It simply uses raw conjecture to go, I think this sounds probable so, and then they continue on as though it's true, and they don't have any evidence for it. So they're so smart, we just have to take their word for it because they're so smart and we're dumb. Uh, that's preposterous. I refuse. I want evidence. I want proof. I want reasoning for why you assign certain things. Um, but every one of the pillars is founded on a broad assumption. Um, even the assumption that the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Vaticanus are reliable, are accurately dated, um, are representations of the original copy. Uh, that's the thing is they kind of, a lot of the, uh, when you listen to people make arguments for this, if you listen, they already assume that scribes change, the later documents are inaccurate. So anywhere they vary from the later documents, vary from the earlier documents, it's not that this was an early mistake that was corrected later on or just simply died out and the proper line continued forward. It simply assumes that the later ones made changes in error and, and additions and fixed errors they found as they went, uh, which is not necessarily true, and they don't have any evidentiary basis for that assumption. They simply presume it in the conversation as they talk. They use words like the Byzantine scribes added, or the Byzantine scribes changed this thing, or, or did this thing, or they were looking at this, and so they made it harmonized between the Gospels. Um, at no point in time do they give a valid footnote for what they believe or why. Uh, a valid footnote being to a, a reference to a primary source. Never. Um, they'll mention other papyri and how there are differences and the nuance of the difference. And then they say, so this difference could be because they added later that. It's never a this, then this. It's never an A plus B equals C. It's never a, a, a connected argument based from evidence. And it's always rationalism. And so there are a lot of issues as uh, systemic problems that, that kind of grow out of assuming this worldview, uh, this view of the scriptures where the Bible is wrong 
and has all these secret errors, and now we have to dig through it to find the truth, and we may never find the truth. Uh, it just, on its face, undermines the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous to assume that the autographs are inspired and inerrant. Uh, but then God would just be like, hands off, and go, well, you know, whatever, whatever they get in a thousand years, good luck. Good luck, buddy. And he just backs up, hands off. You know, they'll figure it out. They're smart. Um, and then he would just let his inerrant, inspired word disappear for the ages. Just like, eh, good luck, you're fine. Um, it's, it's preposterous. The, the idea should be that we receive from history a reliable Bible. Um, it shouldn't be expected that in order to find the actual true word of God, you have to dig through the sands of the desert for thousands of years. Because all these papyri didn't show up till like 1960 or something. Um, <coughs> none of these documents and codexes got found until, you know, I mean, the, the Masoretic text didn't show up till 1000 AD. Um, the, uh, a lot of the different, uh, papyri and stuff, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are all in like 1950s and 60s, that kind of thing. Um, the idea that the word of God had completely disappeared from the earth until a bunch of 1960s, uh, scholars dug in the sand a little bit and like, we found the magic secret. And then they don't publish anything until like 1980. Um, that's insane to me that the world is entirely bereft of the inerrant word of God for that entire amount of time. Um, I don't know. It just seems, it seems a stretch. Uh, but I don't have a hard evidentiary base for that. Um, but as a method though, the entire method skewed to multiply errors. The entire method says the one that doesn't make grammatical sense, we decide that that's the original. Uh, the one that's a bad spelling, that's the original. Uh, the one that doesn't harmonize between the different eyewitness accounts, that's the original. Uh, they're just intentionally breeding errors and more disagreements within the, the canon of Scripture in that 15% that's in question. And it seems needless. Um, and the, the entire foundation for it is just conjecture reason, because I'm a smart boy. Um, and the other issue, too, though, is this gives room for a thing called higher criticism, which is connected, higher criticism, which is connected to the Tubingen School, which comes out of a similar um, secular humanist mode of thought. Uh, you, the entirety of higher criticism, uh, just envision it in air quotes every time I say it, assumes evolution. It assumes because humans evolved biologically, that their rational structures and stories have a similar evolution. And so with this sociological evolutionary anthropology, we're going to view texts as evolutionary entities that developed as oral traditions and then were written down as literary traditions. And then those literary traditions are written down and come to us as it evolves over time and changes and improves and gets better. So initially there might have been five or ten original sayings of Jesus. This is where you get the Q document and uh, those those idiots that would sit in a room and like cast little pebbles and vote on what scripture they thought was actually Jesus and they're a bunch of scholars and we should listen to them and they're all over the history channel and it's stupid. Um, but this, it assumes that evolution is true. Um, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, evolution is theologically untenable. Uh, it also happens to be scientifically untenable. That's a different different time though. Um, 
but the synoptic problem, the, the, the idea that the fact that eyewitness accounts match is a problem for the Bible is stupid. Uh, but that's, the, that's, that's what grows out of higher criticism, which is only has room to grow because of modern textual criticism. Modern being circa like 1800s, 1700s, and, and on uh, to, the, to the present. Um, the Q document, this, it's the German word for source, I forget, Quint, Quintu, whatever. Um, but this idea that there was a, a gospel shorter than Mark, that, that was the source document for the original sayings of Jesus, and everything was expanded and added on. And it's assumed that everything starts as a short oral tradition, becomes a long oral tradition, gets written down, and gets longer over time. This is the assumption. Um, a priori, and there's no evidence. That's the thing. There's never been a Q document found. There's never been like all of the older documents of Mark or Shorter. That's not a thing that happens. It doesn't happen. There's no evidence for it. Um, we've got really old stuff that'll be a full text of scripture. Uh, it's insane. Uh, but that's what they assume. Um, this also leads to some of the Old Testament scholarship about, uh, for those of you listening, I'm, I'm doing air quotes every time my tone changes like that. Uh, the Old Testament scholarship about the JDEP theory, the fact that there was uh, four different authors of the books of Moses based on what word for God was used, which is just complete guessing. And uh, it serves no purpose other than to question Jesus himself, who said Moses wrote it. Moses quote, Jesus quotes from all those different books and says, as Moses said, like every time. Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch because Jesus said so. If Jesus is factually wrong, then he stops being the Son of God. Then there's no salvation for your sins. Then just don't be a Christian. Go away. We don't need you. Um, but if Christ rose from the dead and forgives you your sins and is your Redeemer, then it behooves you to listen to what he says and take what he says at face value. Um, but if the, if the Gospels aren't accurate, then why be a Christian? Go somewhere else. Uh, spend spend your weekends doing something more fun, man. Church isn't worth it. Uh, so yeah, it's it's insane. It's it multiplies errors. It gives the uh, higher criticism in general is uh, this just disgusting growth on biblical scholarship uh, that does nothing but undermine inerrancy and make up fun stories for all these secular humanist scholars to tell each other. Uh, and the fact that anybody who stands behind a pulpit takes them seriously is disgusting. And you should seriously think about that. Um, it's, it's a rotten tree that bears rotten fruit down to its core. You're not going to convince me otherwise. But you're welcome to try. So yeah, that's textual criticism. Uh, it's utter tripe. I think the majority method is the better method uh, because it's better attested. And um, it's also the one that was used for, I don't know, 1,700 years before these cats came along and said, I know a better thing, and, and started changing everything uh, away from what was good and true and beautiful before. That is it, man. Um, but research it for yourself. Uh, look up Tubingen School. Look up the, uh, the Frankfurt School. Look up these different things, the reasoned eclecticism, just start looking at what is textual criticism. Read the Wikipedia. Just get a start. Know that Wikipedia has a liberal bias that's going to be towards secular humanist worldview. Um, that's the biggest thing, too, is you read these scholars and they seem to act like God doesn't exist, there is no supernatural element to reality. 
Um, that's all sort of a prerequisite for being a Christian, guys. So, they're kind of only fundamentalist Christians and non-Christians. Um, because if you don't take the Bible at face value, you don't have a Christianity. Um, if you think God's Word is so riddled with errors as to be incomprehensible um, and need to be fixed by scribes over the years so basic harmonies match between eyewitness accounts, then you you got problems, man. Um, that'd be like me believing the Koran is a bunch of garbage but still like proclaiming to be a Muslim. That's, that's insane. It, the, the fundamental scripture of it is, you know, that. Like, if you believe a worldview, you have to actually hold that worldview. You can just say whatever you want, but you won't actually be that thing. Uh, you'll just have named yourself that. So, anyway, uh, Byzantium is lit. Go read for yourself, and uh, don't take my word for it. Later.